what is it about psychedelics that make them so powerful for treating, you know, pretty intense mental health disorders or substance abuse issues like it it sound it almost sounds too magical to be true sometimes but it is <laughs> it's true <laughs> This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And wow, 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 unladies. I have spent so many hours this past month immersed in mushrooms, psilocybin, psychedelic therapy. I don't know if my brain will ever be the same. And I I, I think that's an okay thing. You know, I have accepted that it is a fun guy world, and we're just living in it. Last episode, we heard from Jennifer Chesick, author of The Psilocybin Handbook for Women. She told us about going to a psychedelic retreat, about the columbusing of psilocybin mushrooms in North America, and kind of laid out why psilocybin is now really the it girly of clinical research and is gradually getting decriminalized. Psilocybin, remember, that is the chemical that distinguishes mushrooms from shrooms, man. (laughs) Psilocybin turns into psilocin when you eat it, and that's what brings on the euphoria, the visuals, in my experience at least, the fun stuff. But here's the thing, y'all. I am unapologetically medicated, therapized, and little did I know I could have been killing two, maybe three birds with one stone and getting some psychedelic therapy. Combine it all, right? Last episode, we were talking about the potential mental health breakthrough treatment that psilocybin could be for things like chronic depression and PTSD. And psychedelic therapy can mean taking psilocybin, but it could also mean ketamine, MDMA, DMT, LSD. But we need to understand the history of how we got here because there are some pink skeletons in the closet in the psychedelic field. Some practitioners were using it for conversion therapy as in a quote-unquote treatment to get rid of the gayness. And this wasn't like a fringe within a fringe. I mean, Timothy Leary, the psychedelic figurehead in 1966, has this exchange in an interview with Playboy magazine. So the interviewer asks, According to some reports, LSD can trigger the acting out of latent homosexual impulses in ostensibly heterosexual men and women. Is there any truth to that, in your opinion? Timothy Leary says, On the contrary, the fact is that LSD is a specific cure for homosexuality. Gee, thanks. Thanks thanks so much for that. But let's leave that in the 60s for now. 
The psychedelic therapeutics market today is valued at more than $4 billion and is expected to triple in the next 10 years, if not sooner. And, you know, if I were a man of industry, I'd say hip, hip, hooray. But with big, fat dollar signs comes the big, unladylike question, the fly in the ointment of who stands to benefit from the shroom boom. Today's guest and psychologist, Dr. Clancy Kavner, is an adamant believer in psychedelic medicine. Personally, she is a big fan of ayahuasca, but she also has her doubts about the full-blown medicalization of mushrooms and other psychedelics. Dr. Kavnar is also a co-founder and board member of the Chikruna Institute, and Chikruna is the place to see what this whole psilocybin psychedelic renaissance looks like through the lens of social justice and liberation. Because that's, that's where we would love for this renaissance to be leading us to, right? So this episode, for the third and final installment of our three-part mini-series, Dr. Kavner is recentering the sacred, healing homophobic trauma, and queering psychedelics, Timmy Leary be damned. And listen, if you are a Timothy Leary head out there listening who wants to well-actually me, just fucking save it, because I don't care. My name is Clancy Kavanagh. I'm a psychologist, so I'm Dr. Clancy Kavanagh, and I am also a board member and a co-founder of Chikruna, which is an institute for psychedelic plant medicines. There's a lot of potential for psychedelics to have a positive impact on people, the way that patterns get embedded in people and the way that psychedelics can help break those patterns up. Can you tell me just a little bit about the Chikruna Institute and what you all are doing with that space and the kind of research that, that you're doing? I guess it's really a social justice organization focused on psychedelics. Chikruna is one of the plants that goes into the ayahuasca brew. Really, the first drug that I was interested in is ayahuasca, but really branched out a lot more into all the different psychedelics and the impact they're having on our culture, on women, on gay people, on Black people, Indigenous people. Instead of relying on the government or relying on doctors or pharmacies or laws, having it in a ceremony rather than just taking it on your own someplace in an apartment. There's lots of different ways that have developed through the years, through the centuries. They're being forgotten, I think, in favor of the way that people take medicine instead of like involving you in a ritual that usually has sacred overtones. What initially piqued your interest in just psychedelics, period? I think I had an unhappy childhood. And I remember going to the library and finding these books, one of which was a I can't remember the name of it, The Mushroom and the Cross or something like that. It was about how this author thought that mushrooms were actually secretly encoded in the story of Jesus. I can't remember the thesis now, but wishing so much that I could get peyote to go on a peyote trip. And then I actually did get peyote in high school. I managed to find it, but I took it on my own and threw up and didn't really have the 
boundaries that I needed to have a meaningful experience. Then I took all kinds of drugs when I was a teenager. And in my 20s, I took tons of LSD. And then I stopped taking drugs for a while because I was taking so many of them. And I went for like nine years without taking any substances. And then I was in therapy and I was reading about how you could use psychedelics to help therapy. So I asked my therapist if I could take some LSD. She said, no, it lasts too long and our therapy is one hour. So that's not going to work for her. So I started researching other substances and I came across ayahuasca, which I had not heard of before which is weird to me, but it was also much, much less known. Within the week of learning the name of that drug and thinking about it, I went to a work party. One of the other therapists there, I said the same conversation I just had here. He said, well, there's a ceremony tomorrow night happening in San Francisco with ayahuasca for students in some class. So I called and I got permission to attend. And then when I attended, I had a very, not very strong experience, but very super interesting. Then I, I told the woman the next day, we all stayed over and I, I was, nobody else liked it that was from that class. I was like, I love this stuff. I said, when's the next time I can come? What was it specifically about ayahuasca that clearly like, like really spoke to you? Literally what you just said, like to me, ayahuasca is like my best friend, like someone who instructs me what to do. I guess everyone has their own preferences and maybe it's because our brain chemistry is different or what reasons people like for the different substances. Because I really don't like mushrooms at all. They make me feel all tired and ayahuasca is like energy and yes, vomiting, yes. So diarrhea, yes. But you know, to me, it's like custom made for my mentality. It can give you very hard lessons, but then you feel good. Like the next day you feel wise. I never regret taking it. I can't praise it enough. And ladies, when was the last time you experienced the simple joy of sitting inside, cozied up at a table, sorting puzzle pieces by edges and insides? Indulge in the timeless pleasure of assembling Ravensburger's Extraordinary Jigsaw Puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail, bringing you an unparalleled puzzle-solving experience. Ambitious unladies, you're going to want to check out the world's largest Mickey Mouse puzzle that clocks in at 40,320 pieces, or warm up with 500 pieces and under. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly, thanks to the wider range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Do different psychedelics offer different therapeutic benefits, or does it just sort of depend on the person? I think that it, it, both. I think ayahuasca for like childhood trauma, it makes people recall things that they had blocked out. They use psilocybin for end of life, which I think is a more gentle, like, oh, God, it's this, and I'm being held in this big pattern. And like LSD, I never found it to be so therapeutic and like healing stuff, but mind expanding to see the world is not the way that you think it is. That's always a good thing to remember. People often say, oh, take ayahuasca and uncover your trauma and then take MDMA to like heal from what you discovered. So yeah, there's different medicines that can do different things and there's different protocols. I think we're learning more now since we have access to this whole spectrum of psychedelics that traditional people usually just had one or two that they had access to that grows in their area or is traditional for their tribe or whatever. So what is psychedelic integration from your standpoint and the way you work with that in therapy? It's two parts. It's not just the integration, it's the preparation. I think a lot of the hard time could be prevented by having preparation before you go, knowing what to expect and knowing the rule of surrender. Like so many people, even after I talk to them and say, don't fight it and don't worry, people can be confused about what happened to them or overwhelmed or trying to make something out of something that they can't understand and they need help figuring it out. You know what it means. Like, let's explore what you already know. And because all of them, this material came out of you. It didn't come from any place else. The integration is meditation, paying attention to how you feel. And that's a good opportunity to work on hard stuff with people. Because when they're feeling like, oh, I never thought about that that way before, it, it can open doors to like new interpretation. So it's a great window of opportunity. If you're in therapy, you can really take advantage of having a more open heart and more forgiving of yourself and of other people. What are some of the unique ethical and legal frameworks that psychedelic therapy providers have to navigate? Well, one of them is that thing that my own therapist said, which is that they last for hours and therapy is traditionally one hour. So once you get it going into the multi-hour thing as a therapist, then you're, how much do you charge an hour? Do you charge, if your rate is 200 an hour, are you going to charge like $1,000 or however much for an afternoon treating someone with like mushrooms? There's the whole thing of just like accessibility. And now we've gone through this whole decriminalization and whatever. And apparently in Oregon, it costs like 1500 to do the facilitated session that's not with a psychologist. It's mushrooms that's, I guess, you have to get from the people that provide them in the system. And then it's crazy that it should cost so much when the plants are free. And ladies, let's sidebar. 
In part two last week, we were introduced to that J.P. Morgan banker by day and ethnomycologist by night, Robert Wasson. Yeah, he, he's the one who told the American public about these euphoric vision-inducing mushrooms in Mexico and basically like old school doxed the indigenous woman, Maria Sabina, who showed him how to take them. And I bring this up because I want you to know that Wasson paid her about $4 for those mushrooms. $4. And that $4, yeah, that has ballooned. I wanted to say mushroom, but I'm really holding back. But that has grown into a four-plus billion-dollar industry today. Let's take the case of Oregon. Psilocybin mushrooms are decriminalized in Oregon. Thank you very much. But... It's not like cannabis where you can just roll up to like a mushroom dispensary in Oregon and do with it what you will. The law is designed for therapeutic use. So you have to take mushrooms in a state licensed support site or dosing center. And at least for now, th that trip to trip, <laughs> it is not cheap. Just recently, the New York Times reported that one psilocybin session is going to run between three and fifteen thousand dollars. Uh huh. That pays for meeting a guide beforehand, a supervised macro dose, and an integration follow up a few days later. And I realized that those prices might come down as this market expands. Now, Oregon does require these businesses to submit a social equity plan as part of its licensing paperwork, but it's just a plan. It's just on paper, and I don't think it requires any follow-up to make sure that it's actually being implemented, and no, health insurance, at this point at least, is not gonna cover that $3,000. I mean, what the hell do you get for $15,000? Hope you at least get like a complimentary eye mask or something. So this is kind of the context where Dr. Kavner is coming from and looking at this whole situation with a lot of understandable side eye. The legal thing is still not solved. And so as long as it's illegal, there's going to be an underground market. And as long as there's an underground market, there's going to be an opportunity for people to make money. And so some people will be charging tons of money while like the Santa Daimi or the Unia de Vegetal, these other religions, part of their creed is to not make a profit on ayahuasca. You know, it's nobody should be making any money off of it. There are a whole bunch of ways that you can't shoehorn psychedelics into regular medical treatment. At least in my opinion, the best thing to do is prepare someone, let them have that experience, and then talk to them about it afterwards. Because the medicine is the teacher. Unless a person's flipping out or gets frightened or something, you know, I think it's better to let the medicine do its thing. Tell me a little bit about what your, your research and similar research has shown about the healing and transformative powers of psychedelics, specifically for queer, trans, and non-binary folks? The reason I did my dissertation was because I, I needed to do a topic that I was interested in. I had learned that many people also were having experiences on ayahuasca that were 
like fighting their own internalized homophobia. And I, there was no reason to think that ayahuasca would make people become straight. And the thing about whatever psychedelic is like, it shows you your own sacred nature. I don't know how else to put it, but it shows you your beauty. And for people to see that is super healing. And I think a lot of gay people feel like they don't have a right to be here, that the world wishes they weren't around or that there's something wrong with them since they're told that by our culture all the time. In addition, like queer people have often undergone a lot of rejection, hatred in their culture, rejection by their families, told by the church that they're sinful and they're going to spend eternity in hell, lies that are told in order to make queer people conform to the patriarchy. And so I think that the power of psychedelics is to, if you can understand that you're being constrained and lied to about yourself, you have a tool to break that open and say that's not true. And you can know something like with a capital K, really, I don't know if that really works, but you can really know who you are at a much more profound level. And gay people have a very high rate of depression, anxiety, alcoholism, drug addiction, things that are signs of too much stress and not, not feeling at home in the world and not being accepted or being allowed to be who they are. And so I think psychedelics can have a really big role in fixing that. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. It is also the only dating app that I personally hear positive reviews of consistently both online and off. Whether you're part of the LGBTQIA family or not, Hinge helps you find people you actually like. One way Hinge does that is through its prompts. They help bring your personality to the front so you can match with people who share your humor and interests. And now, Hinge just launched its new bisexual preferences, offering bi and queer daters options to customize their preferences for age and height across different genders, making it easier to find what you're looking for and go on great dates. And this new feature came from Hinge listening to its bisexual daters. They were wanting more customization over who they see on dating apps. We all deserve to have more control over our dating experience and go on great dates. So download Hinge and find someone worth deleting the app for. So in 2019, Shakruna organized the conference uh, Queering Psychedelics. What kinds of reactions did just the announcement of that conference get and why? Well, it was a little disappointing, actually. There's this whole trope in psychedelics that once we take psychedelics, we'll see that we're all the same and everybody's equal. But uh, some people get angry when you take any part of that out and say, we're going to focus on this. Why should we treat special populations with psychedelics why don't we just give everybody, treat everybody the same? And it's because people are different and people have different issues. And, and so a lot of the backlash was people saying, why would you want to do this? Why should, 
gay people have some special thing. It's psychedelics are for all, and they're going to open everyone's minds in the same way. And and I think there's a little bit of truth to that in that, yes, gay people's brains are not different and they're not going to have a different reaction, but there's different issues. And one of those issues is the experiments in the 60s to change people's sexual orientation. There's like hospital in Canada that was devoted to that. There was places in the United States where people went to, to try to change their sexual orientation using LSD or uh, peyote. Let's sidebar one more time on ladies. In the 1950s and early 60s, the cultural homophobia of the day both fanned fears of psychedelics turning people gay and had some folks like Timothy Leary convinced that they could cure queer attraction. I mean, and let's also remember that queerness at this time still clinically defined as a fucking mental disorder and even criminally deviant behavior. So it's not terribly surprising that some folks actively sought out these kinds of programs, like actively sought out LSD conversion therapy. One place that offered it was Hollywood Hospital in British Columbia, which is probably the hospital Dr. Kavner referred to. By the mid-50s, the private hospital had a reputation as a relatively exclusive rehab clinic that had an LSD treatment program for alcohol addiction, which they'd seen success with, and at some point expanded to LSD conversion therapy. And there is still reconciliation work that needs to happen as a result of that. At Chakruna's 2023 Queering Psychedelics Conference, a talk that caught my eye was titled Dear Straight Psychonauts, an open letter to cishet folks in the psychedelic community from a queer researcher. And that queer researcher was Alex Bessler, a licensed psychologist and psychedelic therapy researcher at Yale, who called on the field in this talk to truly reckon with its history of conversion therapy, that form of queer violence, and for meaningful queer-informed inclusion in psychedelic research and clinical protocols. And that might seem like an obvious update, you know? But as Dr. Kavner has seen firsthand, not everybody is on board for that. Those issues make taking psychedelics, especially in a medical context, possibly uncomfortable for queer people. I think there's these people who think that psychedelics shouldn't be directed at special people, that the whole goal of psychedelics is for us all to lose our egos and join and be one persona. And, you know, that's a beautiful thought. We could all be united and on the same page, but everybody's starting from a different place. So you can't just assume that that or white straight people or whatever majority group you want to put in that everyone's like you and that your situation is applies to everyone. That's a delusion that people get from living in a patriarchy if they're in the top of the pyramid position. They don't consider that in order to fall in line, it can represent trauma to people to be told like you're like this and we're all going to be like this now and it's best if we're all like this because there's a big history of white men timothy leary ramdas i could list all these white men who are famous in the world of psychedelics 
they have had a big influence on it. And I think it's hard for some people to wrap their minds around the fact that actually psychedelics come from indigenous people. And those are the people I think we should be turning to, to ask how to use them and what's the best ways. I, I hope that people will be waking up more now to the role of indigenous people. And that's something that Chakrin is, is very focused on, of like how they have guarded these medicines and how they use them. And maybe you won't even ever get to the why, but if it's part of the ritual, like maybe it's doing something good. Especially with this research renaissance and also just the growing awareness of all these various potentials of psychedelics, do you think there has also been a growing awareness and recognition more within the psychedelics community of, you know, maybe decentering the white Western man? One of Chakruna's goals is to show that, yeah, the people who wrote the history books are the white man, and we don't even know, like, there's just so much stuff that we don't know. Because the other aspect is commercialization, and that's coming in so strong. And people don't have respect for indigenous people. You can look at the United States and how indigenous people are treated. They're only, like, idealized. They're a shaman or something, but the commercialization of psychedelics is the patriarchalization of them for making money and mm -hmm. adding to power and adding to prestige of the providers who do that and the people who manage to stake out their corner in that. And I think the profit motive can make people take drugs that they shouldn't be taking as well as like make drugs inaccessible to people when they should be accessible. The medicalization and the commercialization of it are the things that we need to push back against because this stuff existed all these centuries without these people discovering it and grabbing it and saying, now it's mine, I'm going to sell it to you. Like It's also a very long history of queer people using LSD and mushrooms and all kinds of drugs in their communities for their own reasons, to, for bonding or to make art or to have sex or whatever reason that they want. And we don't need to wait for a doctor or or even a shaman to come tell us that. From where things stand right now, are you optimistic? I mean, I don't want to be a, a doomsayer <laughs> or a downer, but I had an ayahuasca vision about mm -hmm. the patriarchy. It wasn't good. The commercialization of psychedelics is a scary thing because it's going to get eaten up. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I think some people are like, oh, well, if we all drink ayahuasca, if we all take LSD, now the patriarchy is saying, ah, I can see that this could make people better workers. Now we have these retreats where people are going to drink ayahuasca so they can have better ideas at work or taking psilocybin so they can come up with like startups or whatever. And I don't know who, who's going to stop that because if someone finds out they can make a lot of money from something, it's very hard to stop them like you know, oil companies destroying the Amazon, for example. We all know that that's a bad thing, but it's a lot of money to be made, so that continues to happen. So I think we just have to keep speaking out as much as possible to let people understand that this stuff wasn't invented in a laboratory. 
even the parts that were invented, like MDMA was invented in a laboratory, but it, it owes a great debt to indigenous use and ideas from many years ago. And one of the things that was the case was that people weren't getting rich from it. And I think people are going to get rich now and that's going to change things. Well, is there anything else about all of this, about psychedelics, therapy, the commercialization and medicalization factor that you want to make sure listeners know? Well, the main message that I would have is about watching the effect of the patriarchy on not just what's happening in the world of psychedelics, but also on your own psychedelic experience. If you can learn about how we take so many things for granted that have to do with the patriarchy. And that's why it's so successful. It's like, well, men are like this, women are like that. And it kind of takes off from there. The main issue in social justice is, is the patriarchy. And liberation of your mind is the first, that's where the patriarchy has its grip and that's what needs to be liberated. It's not about psychedelics, but it's about the patriarchy. And ladies, we have arrived at the end of our mushroom journey. But I hope that this is only the beginning of me hearing from you all about it. How do you feel? What do you think? Have I enraged you? Any Timothy Leary heads really pissed? Again, I don't care, so save it. <laughs> Hello at unladylike.co is the email address, or you can DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Thank you so much to our guest, Clancy Kavner, and to her partner, Bia LeBate, who put us in touch. Chakruna is doing so much impressive, important work. And if you want to go deeper on this whole social justice side of psychedelics, Dr. Kavner recommends the book Queering Psychedelics, From Oppression to Liberation in Psychedelic Medicine, which she co-edited with Bia and Alex Belser, the one who gave the, the Dear Straight Psychonauts talk. She also recommends their book, Psychedelic Justice Toward a Diverse and Equitable Psychedelic Culture. And if you're like, hey, I don't have time to read a whole book. Well, guess what? There is a ton of excellent writing and research on the Chikruna website, chikruna.net. Their Instagram is also a great resource. You can find them at chikruna.institute. For bonus fun, both mushroom and non-mushroom related, come inside the Unladies Room Patreon. We are getting some exclusive interviews in there this winter, and your $5 per month helps keep this little indie podcast alive. Search Unladylike Media on the Patreon app or go to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? Unladylike. I can't think of anything ladylike about me, so I'm trying to think of the unladylike thing. I don't know. My hair is really short. <laughs> That's not very ladylike. And I am a 
butch lesbian. I don't think that's very ladylike. Not very butch, but I I do my best. <laughs>